0: Welcome to The Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman. I invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before I started investing, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter, at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. Really excited to welcome to the show today, Evan Shapiro and Isaac Mekler from Coda Protocol. Evan, you're the CEO, Isaac, you're the CTO, and you're both the co-founders of the protocol. Welcome to the show, guys.
1: Hey, thanks. Thank you, yeah.
0: So let's, let's talk about your background, Evan, maybe we can start with you. Would you mind just quickly kind of recapping your background and how you got to start Coda?
2: For sure. Um, so it's, yeah, it's mostly, mostly technical, I guess. So I did a computer science undergrad and then I did like a master's in robotics, uh, doing a lot of work on like task planning for like a sort of humanoid robot, um, and yeah, after that, I was, I was going to go do a PhD in robotics, but ultimately decided uh, against, uh, you know, committing like five to six years of my time to that. Um, and instead, I came out to the Bay Area um, and I just started working on like side projects. And I, I had known Izzy actually from, from high school. We had gone to high school together and he had, in the meantime, he'll tell his phone thing, but he had eventually come out here to do a um, PhD in cryptography and um we started really just like kind of thinking about and collaborating on like what would a better cryptocurrency look like like there was so much hype in the cryptocurrency space but like it didn't match like what i think either of us like wanted from that kind of technology and like what we could like think about seeing it as um and uh that kind of collaboration evolved into uh in got
0: it and isaac what about you
2: yeah so um
1: i uh also, while well, I did my undergrad in studying math and computer science, um, then I, I worked um, for a little bit as a software engineer, um, and, you know, I was really into functional programming, so I was, like, using OCaml functional programming as a software engineer. Um, and then, you know, as an undergrad, I'd always, I, I'd always kind of planned to maybe try being an academic, so I went to grad school in Berkeley for, um, well, I originally, I, I was in the math department, Um, And I thought, okay, like I'll study geometry or something. Um, But eventually uh, I basically kind of wandered over to theoretical computer science and then ultimately to like kind of theoretical cryptography, basically. Um, Although cryptography is kind of interesting because like the theory and the practice are are very close to each other. Um, And yeah, you know, Evan and I, uh, as he said, uh, we've known each other for a long time, Um, started working together uh, on, on what would eventually become CODA. Um, oftentimes, like, out of my office <laughs> in the Berkeley Computer Science Building. Um, and eventually, yeah, um, it we started getting traction and, you know, uh, decided to switch over to doing this full-time.
0: And what was it exactly, Evan, I think you touched on it, what was it exactly that you saw that, uh, like, the gap you identified that, you know, led you to start Coda?
2: Uh, well, I guess I have to like set the context of like the time. So it was like early 2017. Um, so this was like pre the crazy hype stuff, but it was a time when like, uh, you know, you had Bitcoin, you had Ethereum, you had a bunch of other cryptocurrencies. Um, and there was a lot of excitement in the space around like what was possible now with cryptocurrency. But there was still like so many fundamental issues with like the technology. Like um, the, the real thing I think that got us really diving into this was um we were really closely following like the Bitcoin Segwit fork, um, and it, it just seems so silly that like everyone was arguing over like you know one or eight like you know megabytes for these blocks when like you know that's not going to support like you know this good abstraction over money that we can all use like you know in our in our you know in our browsers on our phones like everywhere it just is a, so far from like what we'd actually want to see from this technology, uh, and yet everyone's hyping it up like you know Bitcoin is going to like you know be like. The, the, the great savior of like internet finance or whatever um so i i think like just like kind of being in that space we were like just trying to think about like well okay like there's all these little short-term patch solutions but what would like a real like kind of full solution to this look like um and it was just such a fascinating problem just technically to start thinking about like I, 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 we weren't even like, I guess, thinking about it. Like, oh yeah, we're gonna like, you know, start this company and stuff. It was more just like, hey, like, this is like this fascinating, fascinating technical problem that like touches on a lot of things we know. Can we like, you know, kind of be really deep in thinking about it and think about what a good solution would look like?
0: Right, and beyond Bitcoin, right? There are other obviously blockchains, though some of them, I guess, didn't exist at the time you looked at it. And some of the side chains, I guess layer two solutions that are now being worked on. Did you explore these as well? Or you looked at Bitcoin, you said, you know what, like this thing isn't really gonna scale to the level that's needed in order to create yeah. how did you think about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I think we looked at a few things. I mean, we looked at, you know, obviously like Bitcoin and Ethereum and also things like ripple that had sort of a different trust model and also layer two solutions. And, you know, I I think all of these are kind of inadequate in in one way or another Um, ripple obviously uh, and ripple like systems because there's, they're kind of not auditable um, in a sense, and also sort of have this closed consensus model. And then the layer two solutions have these really kind of complicated security uh, properties and performance properties that are, you know, rely on maybe some complicated game-theoretic assumptions, whereas um, you can kind of achieve the same thing using cryptography, using SNARKs, um, in a really clean, easy-to-understand, uh, straightforward way.
2: A- anything you want to add to that, Evan? Fundamentally, a lot of the architectures we looked at were very similar, I felt. Um, like Izzy mentioned, there were some alternatives, but uh, they all had you know drawbacks compared to just being able to verify things with SNARKs.
0: So for listeners who might not be familiar with Coda, what is Coda?
2: Yeah, it's it's a new cryptocurrency. Um, and it has the property that if you want to verify it and use it like as a full node, you don't have to download the whole blockchain. Instead, you download a zero-knowledge proof, a ZK-SNARK, um, that basically asserts to like the correctness of the full history. So you get all the same guarantees as if you downloaded the whole blockchain but you get it like really, really cheaply, like in a few kilobytes and you can check it in like milliseconds.
0: That's really interesting. How does it work exactly?
2: Well, okay.
1: So um, it's it would be difficult to explain in detail, I think, in this uh, venue ex- exactly how the construction works. Um, but there is a technology called ZK-SNARKs. Um, they have a very long history within cryptography going back to... Uh, sometime in the, in the 80s was the first paper about something that you might call snark. Um, and basically what they let you do is if you have a program, any program, uh, you can uh, convince someone else that you ran that program um, and got a certain output. Uh, and you can convince that other person by sending them only a very small amount of data. So as Evan mentioned, some kilobytes. And uh, with them only having to do a very small amount of computation, so like some milliseconds of computation, Uh, whereas the program itself may have taken an arbitrarily long time to run. So maybe you had this program that took a thousand years to run, Uh, you know, it saw all of this gigabytes and gigabytes of data, and then um, you can convince someone, even a very sort of computationally weak someone, like a mobile phone or a browser tab or something, uh, of the correctness of that program, uh, the execution of that program, uh, while only, you know, having them to do a very small amount of computation over a very small amount of data. Um, And then, Essentially, we apply this technology, although with an important sort of twist, which is called recursive composition, um, to the, the computation of verifying a blockchain. So, you know, verifying a blockchain, that is, there is just some program that is called, you know, the verification procedure of a blockchain. Um, and essentially, uh, what happens in Coda is that uh, continually we're producing a snark that asserts that, uh, what's the word, attests to the correctness of the computation of, Verifying the blockchain up to that point. Um, does that does that make sense? We could go into yeah, detail
0: about it the- Yeah, it does. a sorry. couple of
1: questions, please.
0: Yeah, so a couple a couple of questions on what you just said, Isaac. Um, first, when you know, typically when I hear about you know zk Snarks, it's in the context of privacy and you know having privacy on the blockchain right like the zk um, yeah. you know the zcash of the world and so forth yeah. here if i understand you correctly you're kind of applying the same advantages of the technology but for a different use case
1: mm-hmm. yeah so uh maybe it's helpful to say a little bit uh, what zk snark stands for so zk stands for zero knowledge and that's the kind of privacy protecting aspect of zk right. snarks um but the S in SNARK stands for succinct. And what succinct means is, you know, it's short and easy to verify. The proof itself is short and easy to verify. And um, so, you know, ZK-SNARKs, yeah, they have this this private aspect, this ZK aspect, but they also have this succinct aspect, which means that regardless of the complexity of the computation that they're uh, telling you about, that they're attesting to, um, they're short and easy to verify. And so what that means is that you can use them for uh, what you might call verifiable computation or sort of delegated computation. So you might have one powerful party who performs a computation, and then they can pr- they can provide these succinct, these short certificates um, as to the correctness of that computation. Um, so the succinctness is sort of you know it's it's less important in something like Zcash, although it's sort of still important there because you know you, you don't want the proofs to be very large uh, on the blockchain. You want you still want them to be you know as small as possible. So um, Yeah. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, it does. So basically, if I'm trying to simplify that for listeners who might not be as familiar with the technology, I think what you're saying is, and correct me if I'm wrong, that through ZK SNARKs, you can basically validate that a transaction occurred without necessarily having to download the entire blockchain. You can basically say, hey, look, like, you know, this happened, and you can verify that, but you can. Get the benefit of not having to download the entire blockchain which really makes it much more difficult to then scale it just because of the size of the blockchain when you think about stuff like ethereum and bitcoin is is that yeah, fair
1: exactly you just get this tiny little proof it's a few kilobytes and what it says is yeah i already saw a giant blockchain and if you run over that blockchain what you'll find is that you know it's a good blockchain all the all the trends all the signatures and transactions are correct there are no double spends and at the end of the day you know the set of balances of all the users is this.
0: Right, so how do you think about that in the context of trade-offs being made between stuff like security and scalability, for instance? It almost sounds like you're saying, hey, we solved that, but am am I missing something? Like just, what's the thought process there?
1: Yeah, I I can speak to this, Evan, or if you want to. Uh, No, no, go ahead. I, I was, so I guess like the kind of trade-offs are between maybe like, you know, it's, it, I, I think this like trilemma that people often talk about is a little bit, uh, a little bit of, of a false trilemma or needs sort of refinement. So people talk about what? Scalability, security, and no, what do they say? scale Decentralization. Decentralization, security, and scalability. Okay. So. I I guess by security, they maybe mean verifiability or maybe that's part of the decentralization part. But I guess I would say it like this, like there are a few aspects to this trilemma. One is, uh, I guess this is part of security and decentralization. You want the blockchain to be verifiable um, by any by any party. You don't want it to be sort of this like unfalsifiable, you know, a a god telling you uh, this is the state of the world. And I'm sorry, I can't convince you. You just have to believe me. Which is kind of what ends up happening with um, blockchains, which are sort of impossible to, or which, you know, which grow, which grow uh, forever and, and are impractical to actually verify. So, um, yeah. So uh, the thing is with the architecture that we have in Coda, anyone can verify. So it's verifiable regardless of, of the volume of, of transactions that occur. Then there's a the question of uh, sort of decentralization uh, of block production and throughput. And there, there, there's definitely some kind of trade-off that I think is is not really solvable, um, uh, or or in any case would be sort of diff- in some ways difficult to, to solve because you're sort of constrained by, uh, network communication, mm-hmm. and that's and that's kind of like well, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what you can do about that. So I I don't know, Evan, does that seem fair? Is there something more you want to add to that?
2: Yeah, I think there's I guess there's like a lot of subtlety subtlety to the trilemma that usually there's all these different aspects of it as you mentioned, but the, the way I think about it, I, 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 I honestly think that it's kind of like adding snarks into the mix kind of breaks the trilemma as it's commonly thought about. Um, usually like, you know, if you grow the blockchain really, really quickly, um, you're going to have less decentralization, it's gonna be harder to verify. Um, and then if you keep, you know, if you want to keep it super decentralized and easy to verify, you have to keep the blockchain really, really small. Um, and snarks kind of break that, that tension between, between those two things. Um, and so so it kind of solves a lot of the issues to do with the trilemma. There's still a lot of like, you know, remaining questions, but you know, when you add snarks into the mix, it gets you way past the constraints given by the trilemma.
0: Right. So it sounds like when you think about the blockchain trilemma, there are some trade-offs for you guys on the decentralization part of it, but you gain a lot of scalability as a result. Which makes a lot of sense, right? I tend to think that, you know, different blockchains probably have different use cases some might not need to scale as much as others but in your case sounds like you're solving for a different use case which means you need to kind of focus more on the scalability um, aspect of it is that fair
2: um i i i guess maybe i would phrase it slightly differently um okay I, yeah i i think the important thing for us is like when we say decentralization we think that means is like everyone should be able to get like access to the chain in a way where like, you know, everyone in the network should have equal access to understanding what's going on, trusting the state of the world, and not have to rely on any like, you know, centralized third party um, to be able to know what's going on. Um, I think Coda solves with Snarks this, this, this problem very elegantly um, through Snarks. Um, so you kind of do get decentralization and scalability. Um, that, that's, that's I think think my goal anyway for, for the project is like, it should be really easy for everyone to access.
0: Yeah, to, to clarify, I don't mean there's no centralization, right? I just mean, like, there might not be as much as, let's say, like, you know, in Bitcoin's case, when you have, like, tens of thousands of nodes running, but, uh, yeah, I get that it's not a centralized solution.
1: Though. Well, I actually, I would say that it's more more decentralized than Bitcoin, in, oh, in the sense interesting. that, um, okay. I, you know, in the sense that, um, for example, you can talk about decentralization of there's sort of like two, I guess, aspects of decentralization. You can talk about decentralization of verification. So how, uh, you know, how many people actually have the, the resources and uh, necessary to actually verify what's going on in the network and decentralization of block production. So, um, you know, just uh, for, for Bitcoin, I guess you could say block production is somewhat decentralized, although you know, I think most of the hashing power is probably concentrated in, you know, just a few mining pools, so I don't know. Um, and verification is, is sort of somewhat decentralized, you know, if you, if you run your home computer, uh, for a few days, like connect to the internet, you, or maybe a day or something, you can, you can probably, uh, verify the, the, the network, um, with with Coda, I would say block production. Well, it sort of remains to be seen. I mean, it, it depends strongly on like what the token distribution looks like. But I expect that it will be at least as decentralized with regards to block production as Bitcoin. Um, and with respect to verification, much more so, because you know any 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 device practically, like a cell phone, even can uh, fully verify the the chain's history without having to like you know trust miners or trust um, coinbase or, or whatever
0: okay so you don't see any trade-offs when you think about the blockchain dilemma for you guys so
1: for, for for sure there are trade-offs between like um i would say like decentralization of block production and like transaction throughput i would say there are some trade-offs there which are just dependent on like the realities of communication over networks because you know the more if you want to have more people who are communicating with each other like it's just You know, it's going to put more load on the network. You're not going to be able to push as much data through as quickly. So it seems to me, but um, with regards to, um, uh, you know, decentralization of verification, Coda is really the the kind of best um, architecture for that. Um, Evan, is there anything that you would add to that?
2: Yeah, I guess, like, it's it's kind of a, a, a tricky point because usually um, cryptocurrencies are usually thought about in this kind of domain um, with scalability and decentralization and, like, we have to trade off and, like, what's the right balance here? But I, the beautiful thing about Snarks is I think they let you get both um, in a way that's, like, really substantial and um, goes beyond, like, what's classically considered possible with blockchains. Um, so we, we kind of do get both in a way that's, like, uh, really substantial and it's... Uh, uh,
1: I, I would okay. just uh, maybe, yeah, I would, I would maybe I'd add, add one more thing, which is uh, you really, if you want to build a system that's going to be like a source of, um, you know, a source of truth about information that's going to have a substantial impact on people's lives, you want that source of information to be as resistant to tampering as possible. And right now, um, with you know, especially if you imagine current blockchain architectures scaled up to high throughputs, um, they have a, a really kind of glaring point of centralization in terms of verification. So, you know, if you have a blockchain that is 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 processing a lot of transactions, has a lot of throughput, most people are not going to have like a super big computer that's able to verify the, the all the data that's that's coming through the blockchain you know, most people are going to be interacting with it through mobile devices or, you know, a browser or something like that. Um, And so, you know, if you want to attack that uh, blockchain, you you can just sort of go to this weakest part, which is the fact that on the end, you know, for the end user, most people are not really verifying anything. Um, So that's obviously bad. Um, But what's really amazing is that Snarks actually let you kind of circumvent this issue where you can make it so that uh, even that, that sort of final uh, uh, journey of the information from the blockchain to the user can be totally verified um, with a tiny proof that even even like the weakest device uh, can check.
0: And this becomes more of an issue as time goes by, right? Because blockchains become even bigger and bigger and it's becoming even more and more difficult to to make that validation you're talking about. Now, one thing I find really fascinating about what you guys are working on is that when you think about the consensus algorithm, right, my understanding is on Coda, participation is really proportional to how much you stake. And then by participating in the process, basically users help Coda compress when they participate in that snarking process. Can you guys talk more about that?
2: So, so it's proof of stake. Yeah and with the component that the network is working together um, to make this giant snark proof. Um, Like Izzy mentioned before that like, you can imagine that if you have a huge computer, it can produce a snark that can be cheaply checked. In this case, that huge computer is kind of like the whole network. The whole network works together to update this proof um, that then becomes like the snark that everyone can use to verify the chain.
1: Yeah, so in terms of the consensus protocol, as Evan mentioned, it's proof of stake. Um, it's a straightforward proof of stake protocol, um, which is a, a, a new, like sort of a, an updated version of the Ouroboros protocol um, for our specific context of having a succinct, you know, tiny blockchain, um, constant size blockchain. Um, then there is this sort of orthogonal component, um, which is the snarking that you mentioned. So. Um, The consensus nodes basically confirm transactions, so they produce blocks, but then uh, they they don't fully compress those blocks. So they don't take all the transactions in those blocks and compress them all down into one snark. Uh, They uh, basically broadcast those transactions to other nodes um, who then sort of collaboratively work on compressing all of those transactions into a tiny snark, which then gets merged back into the main sort of snark, which represents the blockchain. Um, So the whole thing uh, will then have constant size. But um, So there is this sort of separate role of nodes on the network of snarking nodes, um, which which potentially are different from consensus nodes who are just working on producing snarks to compress the history of the blockchain.
0: Hmm, interesting. So, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Isaac.
1: Oh, no, 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 so I was just going to say, so there's this kind of like, there's kind of like the main snark of the blockchain, which represents almost all of the history. And then there's this like little finite tail of uh, transactions which have yet to be compressed, um, which the network uh, in a distributed way works together on compressing.
0: Right. And you mentioned earlier. Yeah, sorry. go
1: ahead. Oh, and I was just going to say, and, you know, uh, people can run nodes uh, to get fees for comp- doing that work of compressing that tail. Of the most recent transactions.
0: Got it. So, and you mentioned earlier um, mobile usage. Is the goal here really is to kind of optimize for the mobile use case?
1: So, I, I guess I would say it like this: the goal is to kind of democratize overall access to the information of the network, um, and uh, you know most users um, are going to be on uh, ultimately interacting with some application from a mobile or possibly from a browser. So you really want to make sure that those users are going to actually be able to get verified information from the blockchain.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. And where are you in terms of the the product itself? I know you recently rolled out phase three of your testnet. Can you talk more about that? I mean, do you see i assume you're already starting to get some feedback curious how adoption has been like so far
2: yeah so yeah we've been in testnet a few months now um and we're uh, yeah uh, at this point we have a protocol that like it it, it has most of the features you would want it's pretty um reasonably stable um depending on the release and there's a few more features we have to get into it but yeah we've seen a lot of really good traction so far and a lot of um uh, r- really, uh, like, uh, cool adoption from really technical, like, kind of uh, node operators and other like people who follow cryptocurrency. Um, uh, we, we think right now that if we count by like you know number of individuals participating, we're like one of or maybe the largest test net out there right now. Um, we have had over like three hundred people like you know simultaneously connecting. Um, to uh, you know be block producers on our network and I think close to like 400 or f- a little more than 400 uniques, um, ever connect to it. Um, which is really awesome. Um, so yeah, I mean the stage run right now really is just kind of like building like this, like core set of like people that are going to be running, like running block producers on the network. Cause that'll be kind of like the core of the consensus to make it really decentralized. Um, like I mentioned this 300 number, we want to get that up to like, you know, well over a thousand by the time we launch. Um, We're also running this program right now called like the Genesis program where we're trying to onboard a thousand block producers before Mainnet with like, um, you know, fairly substantial token grants provided they're staking. Um, So we want to give like everyone the opportunity to like get involved through that and then like through that build a really decentralized uh, block, like, you know, consensus layer.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because one of the things I think is really important, right? Like we see obviously a lot of different layer one blockchains emerge over the past what like couple of years or so and I think I think oftentimes kinda when I speak to entrepreneurs a lot of them really focus on the tech specs. And you know that's that's great. That's really important obviously but you don't necessarily win just on that, right? Like when you think about Ethereum, you know, is this the best layer one blockchain? Probably open for debate. But I think what Ethereum has going for it is just, you know, the ecosystem, right? Like you have so many developers building different decentralized applications on top of the blockchain. How, beyond the program that you mentioned, what's your thought process there? Like how, how do you go about building that ecosystem that you just described that, you know, you've started doing in order really to drive adoption, which, which I think is probably as challenging as being technically superior to other solutions out there
2: i i totally agree i mean i think the most important thing um that we're focused on right now is like what the ecosystem will look like um, and this whole program i just mentioned and our whole focus on like improving the consensus layer is about like building a community of people that like really help run the network uh because it really comes down to the community at the end of the um right now we're focused on node operators but that will like you know expand into like m- you know folks with just like you know just kind of like general like interest and ability to contribute to cryptocurrency as well as like um developers um down the road as we close to
1: yeah
2: oh just want to mention like yeah i think you will find like um a lot of protocols talk about like you know throughput and like uh you know like latency and um those things i think are super super important but they're not the things that we've been like you know and I think we have fairly good specs for them, but they're not like the ones, things that we've been like kind of focusing on as, uh, you know, I think there's ecosystem things that I like talking about more.
0: And do you have a timeline for mainnet? Like when do you think you guys are going to launch the mainnet? Do you have a sense of that?
2: Uh, a sense. Yeah. So uh, we're in like this phase three right now. Phase three is like focused on like, you node know, operators, like phase four is next phase four. Like it's going to focus on like, um. More like the economics of the protocol, like increasing the node operator set, like developers, and then we're going to be running an adversarial network, um, which will, you know, make sure the security is really good, make sure that we've properly tested all components, um, and then we'll launch mainnet. Um, so, you know, I want to say this will be later this year, um, and I think we're on track to do that. Um, but you know, people should just follow along on our testnet because, like, a lot of exciting progress is happening, um, and uh, we're marching towards it. Right.
0: So so I think scalability, you know, is super important. Obviously, in order for crypto to go more mainstream, that's a must. But so far, you know, when we, we look at the DAP ecosystem, most DApps really haven't taken off yet. So, you know, scalability hasn't necessarily been a critical issue yet. What else are we missing? Like, why haven't we seen, you know, more dApps succeed? What's your guys' take on it?
2: I have two components. Is he like, yeah, feel, make sure you feel anything. I, I think one is just like that cryptocurrency so far has been sort, sort of difficult to, to use and access. Um, like, I think there's a big difference between like, maybe like what it was like to program for like the internet in like, you know, 19, early 1990s versus like today, I think crypto is in like a similar place where like, it's just so much harder to get started. Um, and yeah, I think the other thing maybe is just like that. It is so early. Like, I think that people are still kind of like getting used to and figuring out this technology. I, I would agree
1: with
0: yeah, that. I would, makes just, sense. I, I,
1: yeah, I would just add, I think, I think a lot of the most compelling use cases at, at least the ones which are personally compelling to me, um, it's it's not entirely obvious that there is sort of a uh, like l- let me put it like this: there are use cases that I that I can imagine and that are very compelling to me, which to me obviously are extremely valuable in the sense of providing actual value to people, um, you know, improving you know some aspect of people's lives. But it's not so clear what the business use. Uh, story would be for them so it's not so clear how they could be profit generating activities um uh yeah so like for example i mean you can just think about even really basic things like encryption cryptographic technologies like encryption like what is the profit generating uh activity of encryption it's it, it's not totally clear that there is one except maybe for like improving internal communications or you know preserving communications between companies or whatever but like there's an extremely socially valuable application of encryption which is to allow people to communicate with each other privately without fear of being surveilled by powerful actors um, and you know encryption was a technology that i guess w- was not developed for a profit-seeking activity it was uh, or reasons it was developed by the military um for quote-unquote national security reasons um i i, I think some technologies in the crypto star you know asterisk cryptocurrency cryptography world um, are, are kind of similar in that they are probably potentially extremely socially valuable, um, but it's potentially not obvious what the sort of profit-generating value of, of them is.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense, and you guys both you know brought up some really good points. How do you think about monetization? What's the business model? Is it about the cryptocurrency appreciating in value over time or other ways that you're thinking about monetizing Coda?
2: Uh, I mean, I I guess there's a few components possible to those question, but I I think when we think of like, you know, what's like just like the value provided by like the core cryptocurrency, um, uh, that's kind of the main thing that I think will lend into, you know, the protocol having value um, people using the protocol for things that have value. Uh, And then I think it goes back to something you mentioned earlier around like I, I I guess and also wanted to start the project. Like I think Bitcoin's original dream was like, you know, was going to be like this internet layer, internet like, you know, money layer for the internet. Um and I think Bitcoin's done an incredible job, like, you know, you know, succeeding as like this kind of digital gold, but I, there's like there's still this dream I think of like this like programmable money for the internet. And I think that Coda has a really good chance of being able to execute on that super, super well and be like this, like really easy to access money that you can write programmable rules around that you can like access without, you know, any middlemen or any like big full nodes. It just works on your browser. Um, And I think there's a lot of really exciting uh, things to do once you have that Um, and things that also like, you know, have, you know, clear business cases today and, um, can 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 be really exciting out the gate. Uh, I, I would add also like I think that in the long term, we're also super excited about some of the things that Izzy was was, was mentioning. Like I, I think that once these platforms exist and are accessible by everyone and they're easy to use, like and you have the option of switching this something that like you know respects your privacy, something that um that you can like trust with your data, something that can add value to your life in a way that's not going to be exploitative, that people will start using it. Um, And I I think that the easier this technology gets to use, the more we'll see of that as well.
0: Yeah. Isaac, anything to add?
2: Oh, I mean, just for the interest of the listener,
1: I can maybe just mention some specific applications that I think would be would be really interesting that that you can build with um, technologies like the ones that are using Coda and you know even Coda in the future. Um, you could have things like a website that proves to its users that uh, it's you know not using old data. Uh, So it's sort of deleting old data or at least not using it when it serves you a web page. So like maybe, you know, I love Facebook. It's great. I don't just 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 by the way, but for the sake of the story, let's say I love Facebook. It's great. But, you know, I really wish that they weren't hoarding my data. So, uh, you know, it it would be cool to have, for example, a social network, which sort of provably shows to its users that it's, it's in some sense not using that old data. Um, and you could do that with um, with a, a sort of snarkified blockchain like we have with Coda. Um, other applications uh, that that are interesting are things like verifiable machine learning. So maybe you know you uh, have some machine learning training that you want to do, but you want to make it possible for um, some kind of auditor or like o- overseer to sort of know that some kind of regulations were followed in how that model was trained. Maybe you know certain Certain uh, kinds of examples were excluded from the training set or certain, um, you know, bias prevention techniques were used, employed during training. Um, you could use this technology of ZK SNARKs, especially paired with a blockchain, um, to be able to actually like convince that, that regulator, that overseer, um, or even the end user that in fact those guidelines were followed that, you know, they excluded some user sensitive data in training the model or that they applied bias prevention technique X in training the model. Um, so I think these are sort of the very socially valuable use cases of, of SNARKs. Um, things that, uh, you, you know, SNARKs are, have this sort of democratizing or power leveling uh, feature, which is that they, they make it possible for computationally weak computers like phones or, you know, just people to have unlimited oversight uh, over computationally powerful actors like large companies um, who are, or the government or whatever who are um, who can employ really powerful computers So I think those kinds of applications that sort of leverage that ability to equalize somewhat the power relationship in terms of you know uh, oversight over information um, Are are some of the most exciting ones um, that I hope to see developed in the future
0: These are definitely some really exciting use cases you know, whenever I hear about Pogamel belmani money and, you know, some of the applications you just mentioned, it's so exciting, right? I mean, when you think about kind of the possibilities and the opportunities that it opened that really couldn't exist before. And curious, one of the things, you know, when I, I don't know if you have a similar experience, when I talk with people who are not that much into the weeds in crypto, especially when, you know, mentioning things and, and the possibilities that are enabled by technologies like ZK-SNARKs. One of the things that typically comes up is right on the flip side, how do, you, how do you make sure it's compliant and how do you make sure that technologies like this aren't used for illegal purposes? What are your thoughts on this? I don't know if you've kind of encountered this um, issue as well.
1: I I would say like how these technologies end up being used is mostly a question of power and political struggles and negotiations. So, um, you know, uh, uh, I mean, you you can sort of look look back to maybe the history of encryption for some uh, analogies where the U.S. government had developed this technology and, you know, they were uh, uh, using it freely to conduct war. um, But uh, it it was considered sort of a national secret that you weren't allowed to export uh, because then other enemies of the state could could use it or, you know, there was a lot of hand-wringing about um, terrorists or, uh, you know, malicious people uh, using it to communicate with each other online without being surveilled by by the state. Um, So, yeah, I mean, ultimately every technology will have some Uh, some socially positive and and useful applications like allowing people to communicate with with without being surveilled Um, sometimes those those applications will will be uh, favored by the dominant power structures sometimes they won't be Uh, there will (laughs) you know you may have some some uh, negative applications which are favored by the dominant power structures some which are not there will also be struggles over that so it's a political question like uh, with any technology over over how we as a society choose to condone its usage in in one way or another. Um,
2: Yeah. Evan, do you have anything you want to add? A little bit. Like, like, I guess I think that, like, yeah, cryptocurrency has the potential to be really good for people and also has potential to be bad. Um, Like, I I think that, for example, like, it would, if, if, like, you know, a collection of Silicon Valley companies ended up controlling, like, you know, a large portion of the internet economy, especially in, like, you know uh, G- lower G- middle. Jeez. G- imagine like, that, right.
1: Imagine, imagine, a handful of Silicon Valley companies controlling a large majority <laughs> of, the, of the internet economy. So, sorry.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> True. Good surely point. It can't happen. <laughs> but, no. but, uh, sure, surely no. <laughs> I, I, so yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of ways this technology could be used in a way that's, that's bad. Um, but there's also ways it can be used. That's good. And it's up to like us as people that are, you know, helping, um, you know develop cryptocurrency for the listeners who are you know re- looking at which cryptocurrencies they're interested in going to support like to choose ones that hopefully are moving in a direction that is going to be good for the world um and we're trying to do that you know no, you know but hold us accountable also um but, but i think yeah like the have to have a more democratic chain is in that direction and i i think it's something we should all be thinking about as an issue
0: yeah exactly i mean it's something that's you know always on my mind at least Again, as an industry, how do we you know, how do we do a better job just easing some of these concerns? Because I feel like you know, the better we do as an industry in communicating, you know, the benefits and mitigating some of these concerns, the better, or I guess the faster we can go towards more mainstream adoption, right? It's really difficult without the buying of regulators certainly in places like the u.s to get you know significant traction and um, certainly when you think about the more institutional side of things that's always on my mind and i'm sure yours as well i want to switch gears a bit one of the things i often ask guests on the show is about fundraising right just because there's a lot of you know, entrepreneurs listening to the podcast and aspiring entrepreneurs curious if you guys have, um, you know, any best practices or thoughts about this? I know you've been successful, right? You've raised what, like $18 million or so. Anything you can share with the listeners about your learnings from this process and engaging with venture capitalists? I,
2: I I guess maybe the one thing I would say is like, I think that like, you know, we, we've done this a couple of times and, uh, we, we put a lot of work into it, but I think there's people out there that are like, you know, way bigger experts on it than we are. And I think that like reading their material is probably like the, the, the most uh, productive way to go about learning the, that sort of thing. I think like, um, uh, there's a lot of like VC blogs. There's a lot of books that have been written. Um, I would really recommend like before, um, embarking, um, you kind of just like read all of those, read all those resources and just kind of learn what the field looks like and learn what you're getting into and learn like, you know, what, what is a term sheet and all that kind of thing. Um, and then I, I guess, um, you're going to spend a lot of time with your deck. You're going to spend a lot of time, like making sure that you really understand the space, understand what you'll be building, understanding, um, um you know the, the field you're getting involved in and i would also say like if you can if you have the resources it's great if you can spend some time before going out of fundraising on um, spending some time um building you know the, the most mvp of mvps you can the most like you know basic understanding you can of like um the, the product um that'll help a lot in terms of like um knowing like how to pitch and what you're pitching as well as like um knowing what it'll look like for you to get deeper involved in, in this um in, in the project
0: yeah, makes sense. And uh, given that your product is pretty technically complex, did you have to spend a lot of time just educating potential investors about you know the benefits of Coda and how it differs from other blockchains out there? Just curious, like how much time did you have to spend about you know here's what cryptocurrency is and why it matters versus here's what Coda is and and really going into they need to get the nitty gritty details of it.
1: Um, so a lot of our investors were were you know pretty knowledgeable about crypto in general, especially our, our early investors. But um, I will say that one thing that was really valuable was um, we had, we had like this slide deck that had sort of like kind of cartoons explaining the whole protocol. Um, <laughs> and Love and that. I think that was I think that was extremely helpful actually. Um, in in just kind of like. Very clearly and quickly, like explaining, like okay, what's the deal? What is this about? Why is it interesting? Why is it different? Blah blah blah. Yeah. So like, if you have the time to like spend, you know, drawing a few, making like a few frames, uh, to explain your product, I think that's like a a good thing to do because, um, Evan once said that like you you know like you know humans like have our people like uh can really easily understand things visually, um, a lot more easily than they can with words. Um, and so I think like compressing it down into a little comic into a little story,
0: um, is a, a good thing to do. That's a really great point. I really like that. One more question before we wrap up. We talked about some use cases that you guys are excited about. Wondering, kind of, when you look at the market more broadly, are there any specific, obviously beyond Coda, are there any specific, you know, projects or developments you're excited about in the whole blockchain realm?
2: I'll just say briefly, um, I, I think that in general, like a lot of the new projects that are launching right now, um, wh- whether, you know, things that are new on Ethereum or, you know, some of the other new, um, like layer one projects, I, I think there's a lot of really exciting work going into those. And there's a lot of like, you know, people that are like really thinking deeply about specific problem areas. Um like, I, I think, you know, cello and Near and, uh, you know, I'm going to miss a bunch here, but there's like a whole bunch of these, like, I would even call, like, you know, but Maker and Compound in this category is like things on Ethereum that are really exciting right now. Um, that I, yeah, I'm just like really excited to see where they go and following closely.
0: And uh, and actually one more question.
1: Oh, do you, mind if I, do you mind if I add something to that?
0: Please, please, please do, yeah. Isaac.
1: Yes. I, I would say, like, um, obviously, well, maybe... Maybe this is Maybe this is only obvious to me because, like, I'm so like it's such a niche for me. But um, in the last like six or seven months, there's been an enormous amount of development in snarks um, to make them a lot more efficient, um, have a lot more practical in many ways. Um, and so I think you know the work that um, people, the people on the Zcash team have been doing, the work that um, you know people like Ariel Gabson and um, and people from, uh, the, the Berkeley computer science cryptography group have been doing, um, is, is, you know, really amazing as well as Starkware. Um, and there are some sort of more, I would say marginal projects, which are, which I, I don't really expect to be that successful, uh, in the short term. Um, but have some kind of long-term interesting ideas. Um, like, uh, there's something called trust lines, which is sort of like Uh, A kind of like everyone can kind of make their own money. It's sort of like a debt-based Personal debt-based currency, I guess you could say Um, I think that has a lot of interesting sort of Sociological ideas maybe uh, in it and in the long term could maybe be an interesting technology, but in the short term, I'm not clear Um, Yeah,
0: yeah, some some really exciting projects there that you mentioned Ariel, I think, is working on uh, Aztec. I just had their uh, CEO uh, on the show as well recently, so some really interesting projects there. So, so one last question, actually, I wanted to ask you: How is the blockchain slash crypto ecosystem in the Bay Area? Do you see progress there? Like, I'm just curious, like, you know, if you compare it to, like, say, two, three years ago, do you see more excitement, less?
2: I- I feel like it's really actually kind of developed. I think there was like this, this kind of, this ridiculous kind of crazy like, you know, hype in 2017 and 18 where like there were a lot of people in the Bay Area working on crypto. But um, when I think about the ecosystem now, I feel like it's really developed. Like there's so many people that, like, you know, I think within like, you know, a few blocks of our office, there's like half a dozen or probably close to a dozen crypto companies. Um, and what that means is that there's a lot of kind of like people that, um, are thinking really deeply about the technology, thinking deeply about execution, uh, all all kind of collaborating um, in one way or another with each other, um, and I think th- that's been a really kind of productive environment um, for, for us, and one that like um, is, has been fun to participate in.
1: Yeah, I would just add that um, it, you know it definitely the ecosystem as a whole, the local kind of crypto ecosystem as a whole, really benefits a lot from the proximity to Berkeley and Stanford. Um, cause there's lots of great researchers there and, uh, problem uh, and conferences that they hold where, you know, there is interaction between the industry and, and academia and there's collaboration and, um, yeah, so that's, that's, I think been very valuable as well. And has really developed a lot over the past couple of years.
0: Yeah. Makes sense. The proximity is so crucial, right? Like, you know, I remember before I went to Stanford, like I, I didn't fully, I think, understand that until I got there and then just like, you know, the ability of some of these folks to just get in the car, you know, drive five, 10, 15 minutes and go on campus and vice versa, right, for people from, you know, either Berkeley or Stanford to go to, to these companies, it's just invaluable. Isaac, Evan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really enjoyed the discussion and learning more about Coda. And appreciate you taking the time to to share more insights.
1: Yeah, thanks, Tomer. It was fun. Yeah, thank you for having us.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out.